Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. Loaded show for you today. Alexander Zverev, champion in Madrid, his second title at that event. Three set victory over Matteo Berrettini in Sunday's final. It was an interesting match. I have a lot to say about it. A couple points I want to make there from Zverev and his Djokovician returning performance to why Alexander is fundamentally a better player than Matteo, uh, but how Berrettini can do a better job in the future of overcoming that skill gap. I want to talk about Zverev's double faults, and I want to talk a little bit about covering Alexander Zverev. Then we are going to go to a Rome... No, excuse me. First, we're going to do French Open Power Rankings. It is May 9th, 2021. The latest installment is here. Uh, there's only, I think, two editions left before it'll be time to finally preview Roland Garros. Then uh, we'll preview Rome. Rome is here. It is some of the best, uh, one of the best back-to-back -back weeks of the tennis calendar. I love this Madrid-Rome back-to-back uh, -back on the red clay. And uh, I'll have a Rome preview for you. All right, a great week for both Zverev and Berrettini. There's a couple of points that I actually made in the preview for this match that I don't have time to talk about right now. So if you're interested in some general, pretty vague thoughts in the uh, Zverev's win over Rafa Nadal, Zverev's win over Dominic Team, check out the preview to this final. And the other reason that I would direct you to it is because most of the things I said in the preview were were pretty spot on, and sometimes I'm comically wrong and not afraid to admit it, but in this one, I think I pretty much nailed exactly how the match was going to play out, and I will hit on some of these themes again, and again, I'm not bragging because I will just as uh, readily tell you that uh, when I'm surprised by what happens on the court, because sometimes that's the case, but this one sort of happened how I thought it would, and, and one of those things was I thought that Zverev would do what kind of implement a similar game plan to what Christian Godin did against Matteo Berrettini in the first set and change. And then he completely got away from that, had uh, a nervous breakdown for, for lack of a better phrase, I would say, um, and couldn't maintain that tennis. Berrettini got off the ropes and ended up winning that third set six love. But what Zverev was able to do was uh, really just almost uh, asked so many questions of Berrettini that he was bound to get a couple wrong. And I think the the stat that is most telling is returns in play. Returns in play where Alexander Zverev put 86% back in play. And if you compare that to some of Berrettini's opponents earlier, Delbanis put 71% back. Garin was exceptional, I thought, and still wasn't as good as Zverev, only 81%. And Kasper Ruud in the semifinals put 70% of Berrettini's booming serves back in play. Berrettini averages 210 kilometers on his first serve. It's about, uh, it's over 130 167 kilometers on his second serve. That's also enough to generally get a couple of unreturned second serves here and there. But uh, Zverev would not have it. He was passive. The strategy was passive. He was on the back fence. He was hitting with a lot of margin. He wasn't trying to make it too good. And it wasn't so good. It wasn't too good. 
and Berrettini on his service games was actually getting what he wants to get and needs to get, which is a first ball forehand. But by Zverev repeatedly asking those questions and making sure that Berrettini doesn't win the point with one swing of the racket, but wins it with at least two, maybe three, maybe four, as as many as possible. By making sure of that, Zverev just opened the door for those loose service games. And they don't come unless you ask the questions, right? You, you, you'll never get the wrong answer unless you ask the question. And in this case, um, Zverev was so steady on his return. He put so many in play, had such a strong commitment to, to returning with maximum margin and then just being comfortable in uncomfortable situations. It's not fun to have Berrettini rip forehands at you and then to try to chase him down. It's really generally not a fun place to be. And most tennis players have an instinct to try to to try to avoid that big Berrettini weapon, avoid the forehand. But Zverev, well, Zverev was unwilling to make errors trying to shy away from that Matteo Berrettini forehand. Courtesy of Matt Willis, this statistic, in the second set, which is a set that Zverev won, only one time did Berrettini have to hit a backhand after the serve. They were all forehands. Um, in that respect, it wasn't a Djokovician performance because uh, Djokovic is almost on another level where he takes time away and that would enable him to get it to Berrettini's backhand more often. Zverev could not do that. Zverev was on the back fence, uh, which gave Berrettini pretty much always the time to use his footwork to hit a first ball forehand. But again, by making sure Berrettini... Uh, by asking him to execute that time and time and time again, there were inevitably going to be patches, not inevitably, but there were patches where Berrettini was unable to to do it without fail four times before, uh, before Zverev had something to say about it. So a closer examination, Zverev broke serve three times. First break of serve in the first set, Four forehand unforced errors by Matteo. Second break of serve in the second set. Two forehand unforced errors by Matteo. And they were both at the beginning of the game. Opened up a 15-30 hole for Zverev. Third break of serve again. Two forehand unforced errors by Berrettini. So at least two in all three breaks of serve. None of them went to deuce, which would kind of skew it. And you'd say, well, Gil, he made two unforced errors and there were 10 points. No. Uh, none of them went to deuce. None of them were uh, were were long games that way. So, um, you know, half or more than half, all of them in the case of the first one, came from just simple, you know, Zverev normally coming from behind and finding that forehand on forced error. In fact, if I were to chart every shot that Zverev hit in points that he won in these return games, so that's 12 return points won, um, Zverev's intention was only offensive on one swing of the racket. He hit one inside-out forehand approach shot in the third set, in the game he broke in the third set, 
one time and it, it drew a stretch backhand slice error. That was the only swing of the racket that Zverev had with offensive intention. Zverev played extremely passively on the return game, relied on his legs, relied on putting tons of returns in play, and patiently waited for those lapses in focus, patiently waited for that Berrettini forehand to just misfire a couple of times. That, in combination with a couple of times where Zverev was just able to to play really good scrambles, get to a drop shot, um, second set... 1530s, Zverev anticipates a drop shot, gets up to it, puts away a backhand cross court for a winner. Uh, Berrettini double faults in that game. That was at 4 all, and Zverev served out the second set for 6 4. 1530 at 2 all um, was just unbelievable defense by Zverev. Berrettini won that point a couple of times. Zverev took it away from him. And how did the point end? A Berrettini forehand unforced error. 1540, another Berrettini forehand on forced error. Um, Zverev got to the uh, the Berrettini backhand in that game as well for a backhand slice error. But it was all defense, 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 patience, and it paid off. So Djokovician in that way, I want to say. Um, so many questions that he asked of, of Berrettini. Now, that's a game plan that Berrettini couldn't execute if he tried on the return games. But I am specifically right now focusing on the Zverev return games and how he was able to break serve three times in this Madrid altitude where Berrettini has protected his serve so well. But Berrettini does not have that movement, does not have those defensive capabilities because he's not a quick enough mover around the court. And that is really the the fundamental reason why Zverev is uh, a better player with a higher ceiling and he can reach a higher level than the Italian because Zverev has a two-way game where Berrettini really has a a one-way game. And I would be willing to say that Berrettini is a little bit more prolific offensively than Zverev, um, at, at least on clay, I think he is. He's got a better forehand from the middle of the court, much more reliable, and I actually like his serving a lot better. The second serve, not even close. Berrettini has a better second serve than Zverev. More on that in a moment. Uh, so I think Berrettini is a touch better offensively, but the gap when it comes to defense, and am I oversimplifying this a little bit? Yeah, but the gap when it comes to defense is so much larger in favor of Zverev that if you really match up the players that way, it's clear why Zverev uh, can do really what Berrettini can't on a, on a level that is not true the other way around at all. So... What Matteo needs to do to overcome that is he needs to play more offense on his return games. I found Zverev's service games boring in this match. I really did. I wasn't really entertained by them. I found Zverev's return games with Berrettini serving. I found those games very, very interesting and very entertaining. I enjoyed watching Berrettini um, really take massive cuts and... Fire away on the on his first strike tennis on his forehand, where Zverev's putting returns back in play, and then he's trying to chase chase balls down to try to get back in the rallies and draw the errors. I found that very entertaining. But on Mateo's return games, I uh, I often just didn't find it to be compelling tennis because uh, I, I I didn't think Mateo was doing much. Zverev was getting that those you know healthy dose of free points on the first serve as he does. 
uh, playing off of his front foot. And Berrettini, once that happens, doesn't have much of an answer defensively. He's not going to come from behind in points. Okay, that's fine. There are plenty of players who are like that in Berrettini's category, but they can still find ways to win via attacking attacking on the return, attacking on the second serve return. And Berrettini quite simply didn't do anything on the second serve return. And as a player who is dominant offensively and mediocre defensively, how do you not take charge right away off the second serve return? He allowed Zverev to win 55% of his second serve points. And that's a spot where Zverev can be vulnerable sometimes trying to protect his second serve. Uh, oftentimes, Zverev's second serve is very, very slow, and Zverev double-faulted seven times in this match. So let's take a look at the stats here. Zverev was 16 for 29 on second serve points won. On seven of those points lost, Berrettini didn't need to hit a single ball because Zverev double-faulted. So when Berrettini got the, the return in play, the second serve return in play, he lost a massive percentage of these second serve points. How? How do you let that happen if you are the play style? You know, if you're Matteo Berrettini and you don't want to move much, um, you don't want to play a lot of defense, well, take, take a cut. Oh my God, swing. Like, Look what John Isner does on his second serve returning. Um, you don't need to be that extreme. Berrettini's a way better mover than John Isner, but do a little bit of that. Do what Dominic Team does off of second serve returns, maybe. Drop back a little bit and look for your forehand and take a rip. But Berrettini kind of stands close in and just massages the ball back on a second serve return. And he's really not getting anywhere on that there. For that reason, I never felt like Zverev was under an immense amount of pressure on his service games. And that's why Berrettini had no chance, really, to me, at overcoming his um, overcoming where he is at a disadvantage against Zverev. Overcoming Zverev's two-way game with a one-way game. Um, if, if you're going to do that, you need to play, you need to find ways to get into your one-way game more often. But he he was not able to do that at all. So that's my critique for Matteo Berrettini, who um, I do want to give some love. It, it was a close match. He, he won the first set. He played tremendous first forehand tennis. Um, his forehand is so good, and he was holding serve more often than not. You know, hitting through Zverev on the forehand, which is hard to do, racking up the winners on that side, but eventually it went off the rails and there were more errors. Um, there were too many errors and, and the, the the success just, it was consistent, don't get me wrong, but there were a couple games and that's all it took. There were a couple games where it wasn't. Um, but but the return games, I didn't, I didn't feel like he had much. All right, let me talk about Zverev's double faults because even in victory, uh, let's zoom out here, right? And this was a great week for Zverev, but to me, there's still a, a dark cloud that hangs over this victory. Because if you're going to address Zverev 
by the standards of someone who is is very much aspiring to win a Grand Slam, very much aspiring to become a more consistent player on a week-in, week-out basis, in my opinion. How are you still having these moments where you have no confidence to, to hit a viable kick serve in the service box under pressure? One of the things I said in, in the preview is Berrettini might win this if the margins get really tight and he protects his second serve and Zverev can't. Well, for the most part, Zverev did protect his second serve, as I said, at a 55% rate. But um, this double fault at 8-all, where Zverev had come back from down 5-love in the tiebreak, Berrettini got a little tight here. Zverev, again, just put, put every return back in play. Uh, did an excellent job to continue to just put the pressure on with his return. Uh, but ultimately, it's 8-all, and Zverev hits his first serve, his second serve, 135 miles per hour, flat down the tee. Double fault, wasn't particularly close. And then Berrettini hits a service winner, um, one of his few, turns out, at 9-8 to close out the set. How is this still happening? You know, at a certain point, it's not really excusable. The more time that elapses where this, this issue persists, the less excusable this becomes. And, you know, let's compare them to the great players uh, because there's a, a strong argument can be made that from a talent perspective, that's who he deserves to be compared to. Novak Djokovic had this problem. He changed his service technique. Rafael Nadal throughout his career, has changed his service technique. Why does Verev serve? Why has it looked the same his whole career? I don't understand this. This is what I don't get. And if his technique had been changing, and if the adjustments were being made, and he was continuing to double fault, that would be one thing. That would be something completely different. And I would understand that. Okay, that makes sense. I get that. Uh, maybe it's just a difficult shot for him. But... How how are you going to not do anything? That that's what I'm not that's what I'm not comprehending here. That's where this becomes inexcusable. And now you could say it's mental. You could say, Gil, why would he change his technique? His technique is fine. It's all mental. And he hadn't double faulted until eight all in the first set tiebreak. So you could say, well, Gil, it's mental. So you know you can't really you can't really practice that. You can't adjust your technique. I don't buy that. Now, first of all, there are a lot of smart people who say it's not mental. And you can look up on a new tab if you want to check this out. Look up Alexander Zverev is still double faulting Gil Gross. And you'll find a video that I did with Jeff Salzenstein. Jeff, one of the one of the great tacticians, in my opinion, points out where he thinks Zverev can be better technically. And there are a couple areas. But let's say his technique was good. Okay? Let me just say that, which I, I don't think it's perfect. But let's just say it's perfect. Um, you should still change it. You should still probably change something because you clearly need to reset your mind here. You clearly need to do something different to, to reset the, uh, basically how you feel on your serve. You need to develop a confidence that with your current technique, you have been unable to develop on the kick serve specifically for years on years on years. There was a pandemic. The tour stopped. There have been multiple off seasons 
where Zverev has had plenty of time to work this out and to see this continue to resurface in a big match under pressure means that there is there are continuous questions when it comes to Zverev's second serve, continuous questions that will ultimately get down to the conclusion, is this guy ready to actually win a Grand Slam? And the answer might be no because of that. Because of that. All right, my last point um, is one that some people might not want to hear and might want to skip ahead and go to the French Open Power Rankings, which is fine. Um, but I'll keep this quick. I just want to throw it out there. I'm still finding it a little bit uncomfortable to cover Alexander Zverev. And I'm wondering if people are finding it uncomfortable to watch him as well. I don't have any science on this. Twitter is not an accurate representation of, of what the world is. But um, I'm, you know... I thought there was less buzz. I thought my tweets got a lot less engagement. Maybe my tweets stink. Um, but I'm wondering, and, and maybe part of that is Berrettini. And some players, some people don't like to watch him and think his game's boring. I don't really agree, but some people think that. Uh, but I'm sensing a portion, not everyone, you know, certainly not everyone. I'm sensing a portion of people still feeling uncomfortable watching Alexander Zverev, and I can't really blame you if you're that. I'm still finding it a little bit awkward uh, covering him, and I go about my business. I do my job. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what I'm going to do what I do, uh, but I do still feel like it's a little bit awkward, so I was just thinking about why real quick, and it's just the the lack of closure here is is pretty striking, right? If the ATP did an investigation, went through a process, and then reached a conclusion, I feel like it would be a lot more easy to, a lot easier to just find closure on this and turn the page. But it's so open-ended. It's, it feels like such an open book where, you know, allegation comes out, Zverev said, no, not true. And then nothing, nothing happens, right? There's no investigation, no conclusion, no ATP intervention, no nothing where things just feel so incomplete on that front, where I, st I feel like there's a, a lingering and a looming awkwardness. I wish that wasn't the case because I've seen in other sports, I've seen in other sports, right or wrong, I've seen players go through this process, uh, face consequences or not face consequences, either be exonerated through the uh, lens of the league or not, or face discipline through the lens of the league. And then we are able to, at least some people are able to kind of move on and turn the page. And I think that's hard to do in this case for a lot of people. And I don't blame them. Um, so I just want to throw that out there and, and express that. That's how I feel. I feel, I feel a, a hinge of awkwardness. It is now time for the DB4 Tennis Stat of the Week for more tennis history. Check out www.db4tennis.com. And we're going to talk about the rare relatively rare scenarios, uh, occasions when Nadal loses on clay. It's only happened twice at the 250 level. It's happened four at the four times at the ATP 500 level. And at the Masters level, it's, it's happened 12 times. But one really interesting takeaway from the 12 times he's been defeated at a Masters is outside of the big four, only twice has Nadal lost a Masters and the player who has beaten him has gone on to win the title. Alexander Zverev just did that at 2021 Madrid. Fabio Fanini also did it at Monte Carlo 2019. At the Grand Slam level, two players, Soderling and Djokovic, beat Nadal. Both of them, of course, um, 
won the French Open. So there's always that notion that Madrid does not indicate French Open success, but our friends at DB4 Tennis challenged that notion a little bit. Since the Spanish capital switched from hard court to clay in 2009, every single year since then, at least one semifinalist of Madrid advanced to the semifinal of the French Open. The champion of Madrid has reached the semifinals of Roland Garros every year except 2018 when Alexander Zverev uh, reached the Madrid final but did not reach the final four in Paris. Plus, every time Nadal has won Madrid, he has been the French Open champion. I mean, that, uh, of course, when you, when you have won it as much as Nadal, the stat doesn't mean quite as much, but still some correlation there. All right, let's do a uh, French Open Power Rankings. Let's do it. There it is, April 26th. That is the previous French Open Power Rankings. The date is now May 9th. So let's do it. A couple of changes right off the bat. The next out, Daniil Medvedev bumped out of the French Open Power Rankings. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. The world number two is not in the top 10. If he doesn't figure it out, another he took a loss to Christian Godin. Uh, Madrid conditions, which should really favor Medvedev a little bit more than some of the other clay courts. Yeah, um, I, I shouldn't. I don't want to ignore that he's coming off of his uh, being in bed for ten days, coming back from COVID. I don't want to ignore that. That might have been part of it. So it, it might not just be the clay courts. Uh, but nonetheless, Medvedev needs to win something if he wants to be in the French Open Power Rankings, and so far, he hasn't. I got to drop off Aslan Karatsev. I think he has a chance to do things in Rome and, and get back in, but uh, got to bump him out. Uh, Pablo Carina-Busta still out. Roger Federer waiting on Geneva. All right, number 10 is Yannick Sinner. He's going to move down two spots. Uh, he was upset by Alexi Popperin. Th that's a tough matchup. I feel bad to move down Yannick Sinner. I don't think it's an awful loss. Popperin has so much firepower. We saw so many big servers and uh, big hitters do well in Madrid, and Popperin was finding the court. Incredibly talented player. Nonetheless, an early loss like that is going to bump down Yannick Sinner two spots in the French Open Power Rankings. At number nine, another player bumped down two spots. It is Andre Rublev. Again, I, I feel bad bumping down Rublev because he was the better player against John Isner. He won 13 more points than the big man. He just kind of got Isnered. Didn't win the big points and got a little bit unlucky. Even Isner said after the match that Rublev was the better player. But still, uh, other players have to move up and Rublev moves down two spots. Um, I'm curious to see what he, what he does in Rome. At number eight is Matteo Berrettini. He previously occupied the next out position and... He comes back from an injury in Australia and wins Belgrade and then makes the final in Madrid. Well, I got to give him respect and now put him at number eight. And part of this, the reason I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, is that in 2019, he was also excellent on clay. So it's not just... Uh, not just right now, not just reactionary. And and before you say, you know, Berrettini's not a clay court player, I, I beg to differ. With his spin rate and his serving and his forehand, you know, that that is a new type of clay court player. I'll talk more about that um, sometime in the future. At number seven is Diego Schwartzman. He is down, I think he's down two spots. I know that says one, but wasn't he at number five after team? I think that 
I think he might be down two spots. Anyway, Diego Schwartzman down to number seven. He really needs a big roam. He hasn't done much. Right now, he's simply being buoyed off of his 2020 success where he made the final in Rome and made the semifinals at Roland Garros. Schwartzman needs a big Rome to uh, to, to keep his footing because so far he's been unimpressive. At number six, Kaspar Ruud. How about this? Back to back to back Masters 1000 semifinals for Kaspar Ruud who, who rocks one of the best forehands in the game. One of the highest RPM backhands in the game. The uh, uh, you know high margin, consistent player, sustained um, sustained offense with the best of them. I really love Casper Ruud. Uh, really good high percentage first serving is another thing that Ruud does well, which really helps him on clay courts. Man, um, put some respect on Casper Ruud's name. Now, he dropped out of Rome. He is not playing this week in Rome. So, some players are going to have a chance to jump him. But right now, he's at number six. Number five is Alexander Zverev. He moves up one spot. Another Clay Masters under his belt. Um, now, I will temper my, my French Open power ranking adjustments for Madrid. It is no secret that Madrid does not play very similarly to Roland Garros. So, I move Alexander Zverev to number five. He overtakes Diego Schwartzman. But I do not move him past the man coming in at number four in Dominic Team, And that is mostly because I don't value Madrid as much as I value Rome. If Zverev does better than Team in Rome, I do think that he has a good chance to, to uh, jump Team if Team doesn't look good again. Because uh, Dominic Team, who comes in at number four in the French Open Power Rankings, uh, just broke down physically in the end there. Blisters on his hands, not much in the legs. It was not a good performance at all in the uh, in the semifinal in Madrid. But I think the fact that he made the semifinal is impressive in itself. It was his first tournament back. He completely broke down physically. That's likely to happen again in Rome, if we're being completely honest. But let's see if he if he makes that improvement, if he looks more fit. Right now, team number four, uh, three-time Roland Garros finalist in Dominic Team. Or is it? Is it four? I'm sorry. It's I'm sorry if it's four, but it, it's three or four. I think it's three. I think he lost it three times to uh, Nadal in the French Open final. At number three is Novak Djokovic. Um, didn't play last week. Not much to say about this pick. Let's see how he does in Rome. Uh, no reason to have him jump Stefano Tsitsipas, who finally just didn't have a, a good match. It, it, you know, it, it was going to happen at some point or another, but he had a lot of he had a lot of issues uh, just controlling the tennis ball in uh, in the Madrid altitude against Casper Ruud. Uh, sometimes that happens, but lost a tight first set tiebreak. Uh, Ruud's playing great. I don't read too much into it. I've seen it happen before. You know, Tsitsipas is, he gets a lot of topspin, but he is an Eastern grip player. And uh, Rude was playing phenomenal, phenomenal tennis. Some of the best, some of the best clay court tennis that someone can can really play right up there. And uh, I just felt like Tsitsipas at some point was going to have his clunker. He deserves it. He had played how many, how many big, how many good tournaments in a row uh, at some point or another, that was going to be coming. At number one is still Rafael Nadal. I was uh, I was surprised that he uh, 
He put in another somewhat poor performance against um, against Alexander Zverev after going up 4-2 in the first set. I did not see that coming. The serve wasn't good. The forehand wasn't good. And uh, even the backhand had its its struggles to a certain extent. I really thought that Nadal was uh, had fully turned the corner, but that would tell me otherwise. So, a by Nadal standards, you know, below average clay court season continues. Now, you know, if if, if he wins Rome, all would be healed, all would be well. I'm uh, still not concerned for him. When it comes to Roland Garros, but he needs to begin serving better because I will say this from start to finish, from Monte Carlo to this loss to Zverev in in uh, in Madrid, not at any point has Nadal served well. So he needs to figure out that shot before Paris or during Paris would be fine as well. Uh, I'm not too worried about the ground game. I'm just the the serve is beginning to get worrisome. All right, now it is time for Rome preview. Quarter by quarter, I'll go in a little bit less depth than I'm used to because if I don't, this is going to become a really long video. Uh, Novak Djokovic's quarter features Stefano Tsitsipas, Matteo Berrettini, and Grigor Dimitrov. Dark horse in this quarter is Nicolas Basilashvili. What Basilashvili has not been good at this year is, is kind of showing up from week to week and following up his good tournaments with another good tournament. In fact, for the most part, he's just been mentally checked out. Anytime he wins a tournament next week, he's just checked out and he loses. So, um, you know, with that trend continuing, that would uh, make for him potentially being a difficult matchup for Stefano Tsitsipas and Matteo Berrettini, who uh, Basilashvili plays in the first round. I think that's could be tough for, for Berrettini. I don't know... Um, that's going to be a, a good mental and physical challenge. I believe Rafa Nadal in 2013 won, um, won Madrid and then won Rome. But I don't think it's been done since then. And I think Djokovic um, may have done it as well in, in, in his career. But it's really hard to do. So, you know, Berrettini is on upset alert for that reason. I really admire how he was able to keep his focus at Madrid and just focus at the task at hand. I know it can be distracting. Uh, Madrid is one of Fabio Fanini's worst Masters 1000 tournament. He's got a 35% win percentage in Madrid. I, I don't think he's very motivated at Madrid when, when he shows up. But Berrettini, uh, kudos to, to him not falling under that same category and making the Madrid final. It, it might hurt him in Rome. Early popcorn, potentially Djokovic uh, versus Evans in round two. I do favor Evans in round one against Taylor Fritz. By no means is that a shoe-in. By no means is that a guarantee. But I would like to see that again. I would think that Novak Djokovic would solve that puzzle the second time. But um, curious to see what he has up his sleeve on that cross-court backhand slice. Is he just going to use his uh, improved fitness to just hang in there a little bit longer, or is he going to respond to that in a way that is uh, is going to change that dynamic? So Djokovic-Evans round two, your early popcorn. Quarterfinal, this is tough. This is tough because Stefano Tsitsipas has been the better clay court player than Novak Djokovic. This is a, you know, the slower the surface, in my opinion, the better for Tsitsipas against Djokovic. 
And obviously, Stefanos, um, you know, had the five-set match with Novak at Roland Garros. So this is tough for for a quarterfinal. I think whoever wins this quarterfinal, this perspective quarterfinal, if the seeds hold, um, goes on to make the final, at least. And then I won't spoil it from there. But uh, I'm going to go with Novak Djokovic. He's been very successful at Rome. And... I'm going to go with the pattern that the closer you get to a major, the better Novak Djokovic plays. I'm still puzzled by his scheduling, that he's scheduled to play Belgrade next week, Belgrade 2, and I don't know what to make of that, and it's tripping me up a little bit. Um, but obviously Novak can just drop out of that if he wants to at any point. Uh, I'll go with Djokovic over Tsitsipas. I think that could be a good one, an epic one, really. Dominic Team's quarter features Andre Rublev, Roberta Batista Agut, and Gail Monfils. This is not a great quarter, to be completely honest with you. Um, Roberto Batista Agut is not going to like these conditions too slow for him. Gail Monfils is in awful form, is not going to uh, really love this uh, these conditions either. Um, although he has posted some good results in Paris um, to a certain extent. I guess that's even limited. Dominic Team, how is he going to recover, right? How is he going to recover from um, his right-hand blisters, which I think really bothered him in the semifinal? And even his legs look tired. And, you know, is is he going to be able to play back-to-back -back weeks at, at a high level if he's not fully fit, which he didn't really appear to be? I don't know, uh, but then again, if w the more I think about the Team Rublev matchup on a court this slow, the more I feel like it should favor Dominic Team. So, uh, reluctantly, I'm going to assume that Team might find his best tennis one time. I do like his draw leading up to the quarterfinal, and I'll go Team over Rublev here. Uh, I'm also, you know, uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with Team, <laughs> but. I think uh, if if Rublev if Rublev's health holds up better, he has a good chance to get out of this quarter. Uh, Dark horse Gianluca Majer. Um, he is a big serving, big forehand Italian um, who does have a nice draw here. Um, in hold on, where is he? Oh, Alex Dimonor, who. Yes, won a couple of matches in Madrid, but is not going to like the pace of these clay courts nearly as much. Completely vulnerable. Um, and then he could get the winner of Sinego and Monfils. I, I would favor Sinego in that. Lorenzo Sinego might be a better dark horse, actually. He's kind of a better version of uh, of Maguire. But I did want to uh, give some love to the Italian wildcard who had a really good run in Belgrade. Made the semifinals there. So uh, he's in good form. At his home tournament, this is probably his Super Bowl. He'll be highly motivated. He has a beatable seed in the first round. So uh, I will give some love to him. Let us continue now to... There's no early popcorn in this quarter. Daniil Medvedev's quarter. He's joined by Diego Schwartzman, David Gafan, and Hubert Hurkacz. I have Schwartzman finally taking out Aslan Karatsev. I had to think about this because Karatsev... I have actually picked Karatsev correctly 
twice over Schwartzman at the Australian Open and at Madrid. But both matches have been really close. So you would think that Rome, which is a place that Schwartzman has played so well at, uh, a couple of trips to the semifinal and a trip to the final last year, you would think that these conditions would be enough to just flip that head-to-head towards Schwartzman. Um, in spite of Karatsev's previous successes. Uh, but early popcorn easy. Medvedev and Karatsev round two. You got to feel for Medvedev because another horrible draw. Another terrible draw. And I don't think the draw was kind to him in Madrid either. To draw Alejandro Davidovich Vakina, who he ultimately got through. But then Christian Godin, who's a great player in altitude on clay. Um, who's really not a very good player outside of those ultra-specific conditions. And now... Medvedev gets Karatsev, the most dangerous unseeded player in the entire draw. So that's tough. Um, dark horses are Aslan Karatsev, who, again, it would not surprise me if he made the, a run to the semifinal or the final. Um, he's just that good. Lorenzo Massetti, another uh, dark horse for me. Um, the, this is the only conditions that Musetti's really ready to win at the tour level is uh, a clay court really, really slow. Because uh, when he's rushed, he's no good. But when he's got a lot of time, his his shot-making really comes out. And the reason I put him down as a dark horse is because there's going to be a, a big spotlight on him and a lot of pressure on him. And what I like about Massetti is from everything I've seen out of him up until this point, Massetti actually thrives in that spotlight. He actually embraces it to a large extent and plays really, really well when... Um, when, when he's uh, under pressure like that in big matches, and he has a great record against uh, the elite tour-level players for for his respective level. Upset alert um, is Hubert Hercotch. Let's see. Playing Massetti in the first round. Riley Opelka in the second round. Opelka beat Gazke today. Um, I don't know what's going on with Opelka. He's not playing good tennis, but that's just a side note. Um... So yeah, I have Schwartzman getting through here. David Gaffan, though, I want to say D- David Gaffan's good in Rome. David Gaffan's dangerous here because uh, his underpowered serve is not as much of a disadvantage. He gets to play a lot of neutral rallies, gets a lot of returns in play. It becomes that chess match, and I think Gaffan could be a tough, uh, a tough matchup for Schwartzman. I think that this quarter comes down to Aslan Karatsev, Schwartzman, or Gaffan. Look out for Gaffan as well in this quarter. Uh, lastly, we have the number two seed Rafael Nadal's quarter, joined by Alexander Zverev again, Pablo Carreno Busta, and Denis Shapovalov. Um, Zverev has been extremely inconsistent in general. We saw how he followed up his win in Acapulco with a clunker in Miami, and I think Zverev's probably prone to do that. I have, I have, uh, you know, I don't love Zverev here in this quarter to necessarily make it to a Nadal rematch. I do think that Nadal will have his chances if um, the the serve return battle, or no, not the serve return battle, the first strike tennis disparity won't be as important in Rome conditions either. So I wouldn't be too, too worried about Nadal if that rematch happens, but I think it might not. As you can see, I have Pablo Carreno Busta actually meeting Nadal in the quarterfinals. PCB has played better tennis on clay courts uh, in 2021. 
In the past, he's really enjoyed the hard court a little bit more, but playing well on clay, I have him making the quarterfinal. I think Fabio Fanini is a dark horse. Surprisingly, he hasn't played that well in Rome. He's only got a 50% winning percentage. He plays better at Monte Carlo, but um, I don't really know what that's about. I don't. Um, maybe he's distracted in Rome with his kind of you know extra fanfare, perhaps family, uh, per perhaps just not as focused, but... Uh, I think I still think he can make some noise here. Um, similar to similar to David Gaffan, you like those guys who, who uh, really really great redirection players from the baseline, aggressive um, aggressive returners who have underpowered serves that. A place like Rome that plays as slow as anywhere else, it doesn't hurt them as much. No one on upset alert. I'm excited, though, for this first-round match between Fabio Fanini and Kane Shikori. That's my early popcorn in the first round. Uh, those two, that's a match that I would not want to miss. But I do have Nadal getting through. Uh, really nice draw for, for, Nadal, for Nadal. I think he should be happy with the half that he's in. The top half has, uh, you know, Tsitsipas, Djokovic, Rublev team. I think that that's a better group of players than Schwartzman, Medvedev, Zverev. Uh, so I think Nadal should be pretty happy with that. Uh, but Yannick Sinner. Let's talk about Yannick Sinner. He plays uh, Hugo Umber in the first round. And hopefully we actually get that match. And that's a dangerous one for Nadal if he's not at his best. Uh, again, I'm I'm surprised that Nadal did not play well in, in Madrid. I thought he was turning the corner. But these are the conditions that matter a lot more for, for him. He, he tends to play a little bit better in Rome. It's also Novak's best Masters 1000. And before I get to the final weekend, I just want to say this. If you look at the history of Rome, this is not an upsets tournament. This is a chalk tournament. The best players play well in Rome. Rarely is there a surprise champion. Rarely is there a surprise semifinalist. So that's uh, I take that into account when I'm predicting this, and I'm predicting less upsets. Uh, I think part of that is... How how uh, the proximity to Roland Garros, the pace of the court, um, just less vari variability when you're getting in in tons of neutral situations, uh, unlike Madrid. So I, I think the best players tend to get through here. Let me go to the final weekend here. Let's do it, shall we? Final weekend: Djokovic over Team in two sets, Nadal over Schwartzman in two sets, Nadal over Djokovic in three sets. This is what happened in. Uh, in 2020 as well, or excuse me, 2019. 2019, um, Nadal had a bad clay court season and really got a boost by beating Djokovic in the Rome final. And I'm going to predict that that is what happens again. Going chalk again, I think Tsitsipas is worth a shout out here. Karatsev, worth a shout out here. Uh, he could go far as well. Um, but ultimately, I, I'm thinking chalk. It has been... I think four Masters 1000 finals in a row now without a member of the big three. Whoa. I mean, that's going to change eventually, right? Um, so let's see if it's here. You know you know me. I don't like to litigate these uh, potential matchups at this point because they are very hypothetical. Hopefully, I do better than Madrid. Madrid, I nailed Berrettini. I thought he'd be dangerous, and he was. Uh, but I certainly didn't nail Zverev having a big uh, week because... I just, I don't know how anyone could have, the conditions are great for him in Madrid. Don't get me wrong. They're fantastic for him, but uh, he was not in good form at all. And just, he's so inconsistent and hard to predict. Uh, but hopefully we do better here. Rublev team tripping me up, tripping me up. I do not have a lot of confidence about that. 
Djokovic, Tsitsipas, another one I'm pretty unsure about. Um, but outside of that, let's see what happens. Uh, Rome should be fun. It's going to be tough for me. Uh, don't expect a Friday mailbag. I'll see what I can do this week. Busy week, but certainly, as always, I will catch up with you at the very least after Rome. Uh, remember, Monday Match Analysis available on all podcast platforms. The link is in the description there. If you leave a rating and a review, that's a huge help for me. Um, don't forget to subscribe on both podcast platforms and on YouTube. Hope you enjoyed, and I'll see you next time.